Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when he came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all the things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Meg. Boys and girls, if you'll come up to the front and I'll pray with you before we head out to Story Keepers and Nursery. Stay up till midnight last night? No. Yeah. no. Someone did? I almost, I don't believe God. It was actually, I, we had friends over and we stayed up in, or in here. 
Good for you, Simon. I didn't, I didn't even notice it was the 31st until my mom told me. Wow. What time do you go to bed? Um, eight. Eight? I was in bed by nine, so I'm, I'm with I you. So no one, anyone see the mushroom drop here? Anyone go to see the mushroom drop? Yeah. Oh. The divan is good for you. Well, let's pray before we head out. Let's put our hands in the air, bring them down past our eyes, close our eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this first day of a new year, for all the possibilities that are in it. We thank you for the opportunity to be together with our church family on this uh, January 1st. We pray for the boys and girls in Story Keepers with Miss Tara, that they would uh, learn much and enjoy their time together, be respectful of each other, listen well. Uh, for all who are in nursery as well, that you would bless the boys and girls. We thank you for this significant, important, integral, critical part of the life of this church that each one of them are. We pray your blessing on them now in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can head out. pray together. Dear Father, the Apostle Paul writes that my, your grace is sufficient for us, for your power is made, uh, is made perfect in weakness. Uh, weakness in my voice, Lord, I pray that you would uh, work through that to demonstrate your power, your strength, but even more so than that, that these words that we uh, think of from the Apostle Paul that they would speak into our hearts and our lives, and that for every single one of us gathered in this room, uh, whatever point in the journey of faith we find ourselves this morning, that this would be a word that speaks into our lives, encourages us, and shapes us for the days ahead, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> it's a bit of a risk uh, picking a passage like this, like the one that Meg just read for us on your last Sunday since the service has enough emotion in it, at least for me, and, and yet it is one of those passages that's appropriate uh, to think about on a day like today. Uh, this is traditionally referred to as Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. In terms of farewell addresses in the Bible, it stands alongside Jesus' words in the upper room to his disciples the night before he was crucified, or if you go to the Old Testament, uh, Moses' final words or Joshua's final words uh, to the Israelites. And the situation here in Acts chapter 20, as Luke explains in verse 16, just before uh, where Meg began, is that the Apostle Paul wanted to make it back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, uh, which would have fallen at the end of our month of May. However, on that trip uh, back, the ship he was on was due to spend several days in the harbor at Miletus, which was a little town about 30 miles south of Ephesus. So Paul sends a messenger to Ephesus to ask the elders to make that journey to come and see him. Now, as Meg read the passage, you might have realized there are obviously parallels to our situation today. However, it's worth noting, I think, a few things that are different. For example, in verse 23, Paul is anticipating that in every city he goes to, he will face prison and hardship. I know some of you question the wisdom of moving to a city like New York City the possible dangers that come with such a move, but I sincerely hope that I will be avoiding prison, <laughs> avoiding significant hardship, 
I'll let you know if I'm wrong on that. Uh, but in addition, part of the tangible, uh, the grief that's so tangible in this passage comes from the fact that Paul explained that they would never see each other again. Paul's ministry was to take him now to the western Mediterranean region, hence he did not expect to be back in the Aegean world again. Uh, we're only moving 135 miles from here. Transport and mobility are obviously very different than they were almost 2,000 years ago. So whether you like it or not, we anticipate being able to see you again on many occasions. But although there are differences, Paul's message here is a model for all of us because at some stage or stages in your life, uh, you're going to be saying goodbye or you're going to be uh, staying behind and whether you're staying behind or you're the one leaving. And here in this passage, we have a model, I think, for how as Christians we can help one another in those times of farewell. And so Paul here does three things that we want to look at this morning. First of all, he points to the example of his life in a personal testimony. Uh, secondly, he uh, gives a godly counsel for the future in a specific charge. And then thirdly, he prays for the people. We're going to spend most of our time on the first part here, and then we'll look more briefly at the second two parts of Paul's uh, model for saying farewell. So first of all, Paul points to the example of his life as he gives his personal testimony. He does this in verses 18 to 24, and then 33 to 35. I'm going to pick it up in verse 17 and read through to verse 21. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to them, him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul highlights a number of things here about how he lived while he was with them in, in Ephesus. And the first thing worth noting here is he states in verse 19 that he served them with humility. That's one of those claims that takes us somewhat aback. It's, it, somehow it sounds like the person saying, well, look at how humble I am, which just uh, sort of smacks of the opposite, right, of, of pride. But Paul's not boasting here. Paul's pointing to the gospel, which had taught him that he was worse than he ever thought, but more loved than he ever imagined. Paul's first letter to Timothy, written not too long after this farewell speech, Paul calls himself the worst of sinners. That's not hyperbole. That's not false humility. That is ultimately uh, self-awareness. It's been a few years now since we last ran the uh, Christianity Explored course here, but those of you who uh, participated in that might remember the illustration of, of trying to imagine the room that you're in uh, is a gallery of your life, that every thought and word and deed is displayed on the walls for everyone to, to come in and have a look. Everything's on display. And it's not a particularly comfortable thought, is it? I'm sure that for all of us, there would be many things to celebrate, accomplishments, occasions that brought us joy, uh, but there would also be things that frankly bring a sense of guilt and shame. I know if it was my life on display on these four walls, I wouldn't want to be here while the rest of you are looking around. So most of us can identify with the man who prayed, dear Lord, 
So far the day has been very good. I've not been jealous, spiteful, resentful, critical, but now I'm about to get out of bed. <laughs> if we're willing to be totally honest with ourselves, we, like Paul, are far worse than we ever thought. But if that's where Paul stopped or where you or I would stop, we would live with morbid despair, utterly discouraged. But the gospel doesn't stop there, does it? Because while we're far worse than we ever thought, we're far more loved than we ever imagined. God sees the gallery of your life. He knows all the foul-ups. He knows all those terrible decisions that you've made at different times in your life. He knows it all. But through Jesus Christ, he loves us with an indescribable love. And here's the thing, that if you take those two things, if you take the thought that you're worse than you ever thought, but you're more loved than you ever imagined or dreamt, it creates this dynamite combination in your life of both humility and confidence. And that's dynamite when you bring those two things together. The gospel humbles you to know that you've no right or claim to a superiority complex over anybody else because you know you're a sinner. But it raises you up and it gives you this incredible confidence because you are loved by the ultimate love that matters, which is the love of the God of this universe. And Paul knew that gospel, and so he was able to serve the Ephesians and others with this resulting humility. Secondly, Paul goes on to immediately say in verse 19 that he served them also with tears. I don't think that Paul was saying that he was a particularly weepy person or given to frequent outbursts of emotion. What he seems to be referring to is, is the empathy that he felt towards this congregation. Paul knew what it was to identify with those to whom he ministered. As hard as today is, and as emotional as it might feel, I know it does for me, uh, the reason behind all that emotion is actually a good thing. It's because the Lord has blessed us with each other over the last 14 and a half years. You, you've loved and encouraged Tara and me and Fiona and Duncan and Randall uh, so well in our, in our time here. You've been so kind and affirming and generous and thoughtful. You've sought out to live out the realities of the gospel in wonderful ways towards us, and we'll never forget those things. And while I want to acknowledge that I certainly have not always got things right, I believe I can say that I've sought to pastor and love you to the best of my ability as, as helped by God. One of the ironies of pastoral ministry is that despite all the hours a pastor may put into preparation of sermons, time in the study, for most people in the congregation, the pastor isn't actually remembered, per se, for particular sermons. Now, you've certainly been very affirming of the messages that I've preached over the years here, but I'd say for a significant number of you, my guess is that what you'll remember more than a, any particular sermons is a hospital visit or me coming to see you in your home or talking with you through a crisis in your family or performing a wedding or a baptism of your children, going on a mission trip, and we could go on. That is, we've experienced a lot of life together. We've shared a genuine love for each other, and that's what makes the parting harder. So that I can testify that I know what Paul is talking about here when he talks about serving with tears, because, because you have been and you continue to be extremely dear to us. 
So as Paul gave his personal testimony, he told the Ephesian elders that he had served with humility and with tears. But thirdly, while it may not have been what he would be most remembered for, Paul still does point to his diligence in preaching. Look at verses 20 to 21 again. It says, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I've made no secret of the fact that I've seen one of my primary responsibilities here to teach and preach, preach the Bible to you. It's born of a conviction which is at the center of our Presbyterian and Reformed tradition that the Bible is the word of God and that as Paul says here in verse 32, it is the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance. I would have had no right whatsoever to stand up here week by week and give you Andrew Smith's thoughts on the past seven days, because what matters is what God thinks and what God says. And so what Paul refers to here is what I hope I've done, preaching publicly, reading scripture in homes and hospital. Paul says in verse 21 that he declared the word of God to both Jews and Greeks. He's making the point that the word of God was to be preached to anyone and to everyone. And so we've endeavored to be a church that welcomes people into the life of our church family, no matter what point in the journey of faith they're at, no matter what their beliefs, that they would know that they are welcome here. That's why we have quotes in our bulletin every Sunday for people to reflect on, not just those of us who are Christians. It's why in today's bulletin and every time we would have communion, there would be prayers there for people to pray uh, of faith, uh, coming to faith. So that even if you're here today and you're not in a position to share in the family meal of Jesus, the Lord's Supper, a little later on because you're, you're, you wouldn't say you're at that point yet, we still want you to know how valued your presence is with us here and every Sunday. Pre to preach to everyone, we've tried things like Christianity Explored, Hope Explored, Life Explored, some of which we even did during the pandemic. We were able to include people from New Jersey, North Carolina, but whenever I've preached, the core message I hope has been clear, that as Paul puts it here, that we must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I have to say I was heartened, uh, I think it was quite a few years ago now, when someone said to me, I think it was Carol Crow actually, she said, you know, your sermons are basically the same every week. <laughs> she said, they're always about Jesus. And I thought, well, yeah, that's about as high a compliment as you could pay me. I'll take that. John, John Stott summarizes what Paul says about himself in this passage and what I hope has been true here, that Paul, quote, shared all possible truth with all possible people in all possible ways. So in Paul's model for saying goodbye, he first points to the example of his life in his personal testimony, but secondly, Paul gives godly counsel for the future in a specific charge. Look at verse 28. Pay att careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul's charge here is directed particularly to elders, but it really has lessons for every single one of us. And, and that is, it raises a question, what, do you, what will you do to take care of yourselves and one another as you step into this period of change and transition? Well, Paul says, first of all, watch over yourselves. So that whether you're an elder or a member of PCKS or just a regular attender, uh, your ability to care for one another properly uh, 
to love one another well, to support one another, depends on nourishing yourself first spiritually. I think Paul's instruction here is like that of the flight attendant before takeoff, giving instructions about what to do if the oxygen masks come down in the event of emergency. Remember, remember that if, if that's the case, what you're to do if you've got a child with you or someone who requires assistance, you put yours on first and then you help them. Now, why do they say that? Because you're going to be a lot more effective in helping someone if you can breathe. So in our Christian lives, you need the spiritual oxygen of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which by God's grace is fed through the reading of his word and through prayer and through church and corporate worship, through the sacraments, through growth groups, before you can be of much use to anybody else. The person who is most responsible for your own spiritual development and growth is not the pastor, it's not your spouse, it's not your best friends, it's you. So if you haven't been in the practice of reading your Bible regularly, praying regularly, meeting with others regularly, what better time than the first day of a new year to, to resume or to start? Maybe use the daily prayer project as, as a, a catalyst for that. But as you do those things, you're able then to fulfill the second part of Paul's charge, which is to watch over one another, the flock as he calls them here. But look at the last sentence in verse 28 again. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Do you know whose church this is? It's God's church. Ownership is not about to change, and it will never change. So we might, we might talk about, well, my church or your church, and pastors sometimes mistakenly will talk about Kenneth Square as Andrew's church or Union as Jeremy's church and so on. But as much as we might identify with one particular <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> congregation or church family, the Presbyterian Church of Kenneth Square is God's church. He claims sovereign ownership here because he bought us, not with silver or gold, not with stocks or bonds, but with the blood of his own, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if this church is his church, you can bet that he cares about it even more than you or I care for it. He cares for what will happen during the vacancy. He cares deeply about how you will watch over yourselves and over one another. He cares passionately about who's going to be the, the transitional pastor and then the full-time pastor after that. He wants more than you or I want to see this church to be a place that genuinely helps people to taste and see that the Lord is good. And you can't forget that. He bought you with the blood of his son, and he's going to take care of you. So watch over yourselves and one another. And then lastly, in Paul's model of saying goodbye, he not only provides his personal testimony and a specific charge, but lastly, he prays for them. The content of the prayer isn't actually given, but it's alluded to here in verse 32. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This makes sense, really, after the last point, doesn't it? If it's not Paul's church, it's God's church, and so Paul commits them to God and to the word of his grace. And then it's almost as if Paul, knowing that he will not see these dear friends again, 
lifts his eyes and their eyes beyond this present world to look to another place and another time when perhaps he's thinking in the back of his mind, he will see them and be with them again. That this word of grace, Paul says, can build you up and give you an inheritance among all who belong to God. Now, if the end goal of Paul's prayer here is that the Ephesians will receive this inheritance, then it's worth us just thinking for a moment about the nature of this inheritance that he's talking about. Paul alludes to fixing his eyes on that inheritance earlier in his speech in verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So just put yourself in Paul's sandals for a moment. Paul knew that through the Holy Spirit that imprisonment and hardship were just around the corner. In fact, if you read through the rest of Acts, you discover that Paul from this point on faced four riots, three court cases, crowds trying to kill him on at least two occasions, a frightening trip to Rome where he gets shipwrecked, and then getting to Malta where a viper latches onto him and pumps venom into his veins. But no matter what happened, Paul was ready to face it all, to give up his liberty and even his life for Jesus Christ. In his letter to the Philippian church, Paul tells them that life or death was not the issue that mattered ultimately, hence his willingness to face all manner of risks. What mattered most was that Christ be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. And the question I want to finish with for us this morning is this. How do you come to that position where life or death is not ultimately what matters to you? And Paul's answer to that in Philippians is that you come to it by having the right definition of life. Right after that verse in Philippians, Paul gives his definition of, of life. It's the definition that undergirded everything that he did, everything that he thought. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's confidence in sharing in this inheritance he mentioned with these Ephesians was rooted in their collective definition of life. His prayer committing the Ephesians to God and to the word of his grace was a prayer that they too would share this definition of life because the inheritance is only promised to those who hold to this definition of life. So what does this definition mean? What does it mean to me to live as Christ? It means that Jesus Christ, the one who lived the life you and I should have lived, the life of perfect obedience to God, and died the death we should have died, paying the penalty for our sins, it means that he's your center, he's your identity, he's your security, he's your hope, your joy, your life. He's your inheritance. Some of you have heard me speak at funerals on this verse from Philippians 1. In fact, I used it at Bob Pearson's service just this past November. And what I point out to those who are there paying their respects, but also who are confronted at any funeral they go to with their own mortality, what I, what I mentioned is this, that if you put anything else in that definition of life other than Christ in the first part, then the second half makes absolutely no sense. For some of us, the temptation in life may be to define our lives by money. To me, to live is money. Mark Twain said once, what is the chief end of man? 
to get rich, dishonestly if he can, honestly if he must. But then if you finish the sentence, to me to live is money and to die is, it's not gain, it's loss. For some of us, we define our lives by our families, by our relationships. Nothing comes before our family, we say. To me, to live is family. When the actor Johnny Depp became a father, this is what he said, my little girl is not just the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, she's the only thing that has ever happened to me. She's the only reason to live. She's the only reason to wake up in the morning. She's the only reason to draw breath. Now, I love my family. We've all been together this Christmas time. It's our favorite time when we're all together. But you can't define your life by your family because if you finish the sentence, to me, to live is family, to die is... It's loss. Sympathy cards may say that our loved ones who have died are still with us, but that's a lie because death rips us apart. That's why it's so hard. For some of us, our lives revolve around sport or a particular team. So for some who cheer on the Eagles or the Phillies or the Steelers or Manchester United, as I mentioned last Sunday, sorry about that, it's, it's more than just following a particular team. It becomes a religion. To, to me, to live is the Phillies or the Eagles or the Steelers or, or whoever. And to die is loss. I don't know what every single person here would put in there as your definition of life. And you might say, well, isn't variety the spice of life that we all might have a different definition of life? Perhaps, but if, you're, if your definition of life can't provide an answer for how you're going to deal with death, then it's not worth the paper that you would write it on. Paul's definition here is the only definition that can finish the sentence this way. To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's gain. It's better. It's greater. Why? Because Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection has defeated death and he offers to each one of us who has banked our life on him more of what we lived for, which is himself. To die is gained because to die is to come into his presence. And that's the message of life, eternal life, that we have to offer. That's the inheritance promised to all who hold on to this definition of life. That's the inheritance that together we will share one day so that whether we do see each other again in this world or not, and I sincerely hope and expect we will, but still, even if we didn't, we know that we will see one another in that shared inheritance of the new heaven and the new earth for all who trust in Jesus. And so brothers and sisters, friends, like Paul, like Paul now, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in your grace and providence you've given us this portion of scripture. And that while some circumstances are the same and some are different, that it reminds us of how how we can think about moments like these, how you equip us, how you remind us of what are the things that are of a first importance, 
that for believers, that goodbye never really is goodbye, whether we see each other in this life again or not. It doesn't reduce the pain and the tears, the emotion, but it helps put things in some perspective. And so walk uh, with us as we seek to practice these things in our lives, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Respond to God's word and we prepare to come.